I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hey everybody and welcome to our podcast today. Today we are in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Um, And you'll note as you read this that it it kind of divides the story in in two. Um, And next week we'll go into the second part of that. But this is that place where Jesus is reading from the book of Isaiah in the the synagogue. And so I'm going to have Alan tell us, A, why this is divided apart, and also, too, to put it into some context for us. Well, honestly, I can't tell you why they divided it. That that doesn't make much sense to me. (laughs) No, it really doesn't. But um, um, I'm sure they divided it just to spread it out over the season of Epiphany. Ordinary time, you know, is is something that is sort of... um, um, they, they, they just try to fill it up the best they can in the, in the lectionary. And, and Epiphany counts as ordinary time in, in that sort of calendar. But really, I, you know, to me, I, I would say that our gospel lesson for today is perhaps one of the most distinct episodes in Luke's gospel. Um, this event, Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, is told in both Matthew and Mark, but Luke's account... Uh, is almost completely unique. Mm. When, when you look at it, they're summarizing very briefly, and there are some things, just a few phrases that they have in common with Luke, but the vast majority of Luke's content that he provides for this encounter is unique to Luke's gospel. It's not found anywhere else. And also, it's unique because in Luke's gospel, this episode stands right at the outset of Jesus' public ministry. Mm -hmm. It's as if Jesus launches his public ministry from the synagogue at Nazareth. Uh, And, you know, in in Matthew and and Mark, it takes place in the middle of Jesus' Mm. Galilean Mm -hmm. ministry. It's it's just, it's, you know, something that happens. But it doesn't have sort of the uh, thematic significance that Luke uses it. Luke uses it to set the tone Mm -hmm. for his gospel as Mm -hmm. a whole. And I'm reminded, you know, Mark did this with his introductory phrase, the good, the beginning of the good news of Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, the Son of God. You know, mm-hmm. um, um, John does this, I think, by re- relocating the the um, the cleansing of the temple story to mm-hmm. John chapter two to show you know that this was mm-hmm. sort of paradigmatic for Jesus' ministry. I think in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. is a similar kind of passage, you know, because it. It presents Jesus as a teacher of of mm-hmm. really um, the new Torah, um, the new instruction, and the, mm-hmm. the the greater righteousness that Jesus advocated. So this is a very important passage for Luke's gospel uh, because it really does, I think, mm-hmm. set the tone and and really introduce some of the major themes that Luke's going to explore in the gospel. You know, Alan, as you're introducing this to us, I'm I'm thinking that many people might have. One jumped over this as not being that significant. Um, I'm just talking about basic readers because you know, there's this excitement of all these preceding Christmas stories that mm-hmm. that are so much part of our culture. And I think people get to this 
I think it's a little bit confusing and I think they want to jump over it and mm-hmm. not really recognize its centrality. So I'm glad that you're pointing this out. I think this is one that, I, and I think it's, I think it can be confusing. It, it, he comes in and he's reading right. this and it's going well and then they reject him and, right. and it's a little bit hard to make sense of. So. Yeah, because it seems like a strange twist right. that, that they go from speaking well of him to mm-hmm. wanting to throw him off a cliff. Right, right. <laughs> it seems very, very yeah. quick. So, yeah. um, um, the, I think this is not only does Alan make, say this as a point, but but to re to reemphasize that this being a really important yeah. kind of launching place for this gospel is is is, uh, is very interesting. Yeah, and I, you know, actually, even the way Luke introduces the episode, I think Luke is trying to clue us into its importance. You know, he says Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and actually, a more literal translation would be Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to to Galilee. So it's it's in the that he's he's doing everything he does in the power of mm-hmm. the Spirit, mm-hmm. and we mentioned that um, in, a re, in an earlier uh, podcast that this is something that's important in Luke's gospel mm-hmm. that. Luke is is um, uh, demonstrating Jesus' ministry in Galilee as something that Jesus does in the power of the Spirit. Now, both Matthew and Mark link Jesus' arrival in or departure to Galilee with the fact that John had been arrested, which makes some narrative sense because mm-hmm. previously, you know, the idea was that perhaps Jesus might have been uh, in some areas where, um, you know, he might have been more under the influence of Jerusalem. But after John was arrested, Matthew tells us that he withdrew to Galilee, you know, sort of as a, as a, almost a safety measure. Uh, But in Luke's gospel, it's only the fact that he came in the power of the spirit that directed Mm -hmm. his actions. Nothing, you know, it's not connected with any of that kind of um, narrative or historical setting. It's simply, you know, um, Jesus uh, comes in the, in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And I I think, again, this is, this is probably uh, due to the fact that Luke has relocated this passage well, to the yeah, beginning of the I, gospel. You know, I think in my mind is it's been relocated. How how does that impact our biography of Jesus, or does that matter? Well, the, the gospels weren't written as biographies; right. they were written as gospels, and right. I think that's the mistake that people have made for centuries in trying to make them biographies. They're not. Mm-hmm. We have a basic. Uh, chronological outline of Jesus' life that we can reconstruct from the Gospels, but but they're not meant to be biographies. They're meant to tell us the good news about Jesus, right? And and they all have somewhat of their own take on what is the most important emphasis mm-hmm. in that good news. And so um, we're going to see that this passage really. You know, as we go through Luke's gospel, mm-hmm. we're going to see that this passage really sets the tone for the way Jesus, the way Luke reads Jesus' ministry, mm-hmm. and the way he understands its importance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I uh, right. I think, um, yeah. I, as I was as I was reading this myself, and and the reason I, I add this because I do think people look. They think of Jesus, especially if they come off of Christmas, right? We come off of Christmas, and we have mm-hmm. this chronological sense of what happened, right? We and and so I think we are in that that mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to emphasize that this is more about setting the stage for Jesus' ministry than it is mm-hmm. about when it happens in Jesus. Well, the imp- the important message is the good news about Jesus, and and it's mm-hmm. the, the important message is not. Well, this is a chronological biography of Jesus' right. life. The important message is this is the good news. It's right. a it's a proclamation 
So the gospels are proclamation. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, in, in, as I said, Luke is, Luke is using this passage to sort of set right. the tone for that proclamation. Mm-hmm. It's as, almost as if this is the premise of his sermon about Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, Obviously, we have this sense. We know it's in the other Gospels, but but tell us a little bit more then about this. its space in Luke's Gospel. Yeah, so all four Gospels then go on to tell us that when Jesus went into Galilee, a report about him spread through all the surrounding country, as we find um, right here at the beginning of, of Luke's Gospel. In Luke's account, however, it's a little strange because there had not yet been anything really right. to report about him uh, because this marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And so, again, I think we see one of the seams, perhaps, in the gospel tradition that's evident because of Luke's arrangement of the episodes. Um, now, Luke also tells us that Jesus began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone in verse 15. And I would say that another possibility here, besides the fact that what's going on is that we're dealing with the fact that Luke has relocated this, uh, Luke summarizes. This is something Luke does throughout the gospel and in Acts as well. And so both of these statements seem to be summarizing statements that sort of encapsulate Jesus' ministry. You know, none of the gospels give us, you know, every single event that happened in Jesus' ministry, mm-hmm. right? And so all of the Gospels do this to some extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's what's going on here, I think, also, is that Luke is summarizing. Um, and we see this especially in comparison with the other synoptics who report that Jesus began his ministry by, claim, by proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, now, particularly important, I think, for Luke's Gospel is the note that Jesus was praised by everyone and of course, the the story is going to go on and show yeah. us a very notable yeah. exception to that. Yeah, it, 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 we kind of mentioned this at the beginning. This is partly why this is so confusing because mm-hmm. you're it, one, it, it shifts very quickly. Mm-hmm. But we're not there yet. So tell us about how this passage is introduced. Yeah, how does it? It's it's really fascinating, I think, because the way Luke introduces the account of Jesus preaching at Nazareth is by saying, when he came to Nazareth, where he was brought up, Mm -hmm. he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. And that ought to be ringing some bells, that Mm -hmm. phrase, as was his custom, because um, that was kind of the way Luke portrayed Joseph and Mary, you know, with the presentation at the temple and with their going up. In fact, we have a, a similar phrase to the one we find here in, in the story about the Passover uh, where Jesus stayed behind at the temple that we just looked at. Uh, so I think Luke emphasizes two things here. First, that Jesus grew up in Nazareth so that yep. it was his hometown, his mm-hmm. as Matthew and Mark say. And second, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. The phrase is katata iothos auto, uh, literally according to what he was accustomed to. Uh, mm-hmm. Iothos is, I believe it's a pluperfect passive participle that really has transitioned more into functioning like an absolute noun on its own. And so it's mm-hmm. it's not very different from the same phrase katata ethos that we saw in Luke 2.42 mm-hmm. that to describe Joseph and Mary's right, right. Um, attendance at the Passover, they went according to their custom. Yeah, and, and how interesting to um, that he's using this same kind of context. Yeah, both of well, them. and, and mm-hmm. with both Jesus and with his parents, you know, mm-hmm. Luke tried to establish that Joseph and Mary were practicing the Torah, and now he's showing right the very 
outset of Jesus' ministry that Jesus practiced the Torah just like his parents mm-hmm, had done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, I think this is, there's a little bit of polemic almost going on here in that, you know, if the people at Nazareth faulted him, for something, if they rejected him for something, if they were offended by something, it couldn't. It was not because he did not practice the law. Because I think Luke is trying to demonstrate that Jesus, it was his custom to go to the synagogue. He was a law-abiding Jewish right, person, right. And, and he, he, you know, he kept the Torah. He practiced the Torah out mm-hmm, of reverence for mm-hmm. God. So um, that wasn't the problem, right? <laughs> So we're going to move on. You know, as, as before we head into this next section, I, in my mind, is Jesus is teaching, but I'm not sure that's how Luke presents it. Well, I think he does. It's just, it's a little bit different from what we would envision as teaching. You know, um, and, and Matthew and Mark say Jesus was teaching in the synagogues of Galilee, but Luke makes it a little more, I guess, detailed. He just simply says he stood up to read. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you've ever participated in a Jewish worship service, you'll know that it is still the custom today. Um, much like the pattern in more traditional ser- churches, a, a liturgist, or sometimes more than one, will read the prescribed readings for the day. I attended a Jewish bar mitzvah service a number of years ago, and the rabbi and at least one leader of the congregation and the young man were all bent over the Torah scroll as he used the Torah pointer, the little um, silver Mm-hmm. Uh, pen-like device to mark his place. And I, I have to envision that perhaps something similar might have happened on this occasion. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that the rabbi would have been there and maybe some, maybe the leader of the synagogue mm-hmm. and, and Jesus were together reading um, the, the prophet, the scroll from the prophet. Now, you know, we don't know our earliest understanding of a synagogue service comes from a little later than the first century. Mm-hmm. And from that point in time, you know, there would have been a reading from the Torah. There would have been a reading from the, the prophets, which included the history writings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the history and the prophets would have been included in the prophets. And there would have been a reading from the writings. And uh, a clever rabbi would have tried to coordinate all three of them, mm-hmm. much as we still do today, you know, with our lectionary passages. We try to, sometimes we try to bring them all together mm-hmm. in a sermon. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's something that's, that's probably going on in the background here too. Yeah. Yeah. My mind goes places I probably shouldn't ask questions about, but you know, I'm thinking this is his hometown. He's been going to this. Right. He's he been grew up in up this there. synagogue. People should be rec- should recognize who he is. Mm-hmm. Is this the first time he got up to read? Probably Maybe, not. Probably not. So it, just an interesting Anyway, those are speculations we we don't know, right? I think some of the historical background, we have to presuppose that this really took place later on in Jesus' ministry after he had already done things that had had, had won him acclaim and that the people in Nazareth had heard about him. And so when he came to his hometown as as an honored guest, he was invited to read. Oh, yeah. I think that makes sense. That that helps. That aspect of the historical part of it needs to be understood here, even though Luke rearranges things. Right. Okay. Okay, good. That's helpful. All right. So let's, let's keep moving on. And what you know, what does he read? Well, Luke proceeds to tell us that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and he proceeds to read. Now, as we've talked about before, the question of whether a synagogue in a village like Nazareth would have been able to afford a Torah scroll, let alone a scroll of the prophets, 
I think is an open question. Mm -hmm. We don't really know how to answer that question. But beyond that, though it was once assumed that literacy was widespread in the Greco-Roman world, that's no longer taken for granted. And so really the question of was Jesus able to read the the scroll is is, is an open question as well. Um, And it's complicated in the Jewish world. Um, because um, there were different kinds of literacy, right, first of all. exactly. Um, there was the professional literacy of the scribes who could both read and write, and the more basic functional literacy by which those who were adequately educated could read to some extent, but really could not write much. And I think about Paul, who you know would have received a rabbinic education. He, he very likely could read, but he uses scribes to write his letters mm-hmm. and could only append a poorly written signature at the end of his, you know, he says right. in Galatians, yeah. he almost apologizes for what his large letters. letters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. In other words, it's not a professional uh, script. It's not a professional hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, second, the availability of and access to such education cannot be assumed as we do today mm-hmm. as being widespread. You know, we sort mm-hmm. of assume that every Jewish young man would have been taught how to read well many of them would have been but that that would have depended on their circumstances and that leads us to the third sort of qualification here and that is literacy and oral communication overlapped for centuries and and even for centuries later literacy and oral communication would continue to overlap and the majority of people primarily relied on oral language skills and not written reading and writing and we see something of this in the transmission of the rabbinic teachings for centuries after this. Mm-hmm. They were committed to memory. Right, right, exactly. Um, and so <laughs> all of that is to say, <laughs> did Jesus really read, take the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and read uh, this passage? Um, I, I think it seems unlikely that Joseph and Mary would have been able to afford to pay a tutor to teach Jesus to read the Torah Mm -hmm. in Hebrew. I think that's unlikely. And so I think that leaves me with the conclusion that perhaps Luke is using a technique he employs in Acts for recounting the speeches of the apostles. Um, He's not presenting a verbatim report of what happened, but rather a summation of the content in a way that was coherent with the themes of Acts. That's Mm -hmm. the way he presents the speeches of the the apostles in Acts. So here, Jesus, as a quote-unquote reader of the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, perhaps is a literary device that enables Luke to demonstrate the connection between the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and Jesus' ministry. And I will say this is a connection which has been debated in New Testament studies, but which I think is well established in the New Testament church um, uh, by the time Luke is Mm -hmm. writing his gospel Mm -hmm. on the basis of the quotations to and allusions to the servant passages in the Greek New Testament. Mm. There's quite a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And so I think that connection was already well well established. So I think... um, and again, people might say, wait, what? Well, of course Jesus could read. He was the son of God. Well, again, that's reading, I think, our situation. Where I agree. everybody I was has say that's kind of uh, that's kind of a modern day assumption. Yeah, everybody has basic literacy, uh, reading and writing. You know, you could make the same argument. Wouldn't he just have all the all everything memorized because he was a son of God? I mean, it is a very similar argument. Um, and and I I think the 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 reality is we we can't look behind the screen so to speak and understand and know exactly what was going on with Luke. 
All we can do is take what we have and try to do the best we can with it. And the best sense I can make out of this is that Luke is crafting this episode with thematic purposes Mm -hmm. in mind. Again, Luke is not trying to write an encyclopedia article about the life of Jesus that is purely factual. Luke is preaching here. And he's trying to show the significance of Jesus. So he's taking a little bit of literary license here, we might might say, by our strict historical standards. But that was not a standard of the day. Right. That was something that was commonly practiced in historical writings of the day that that authors could place on the lips of the subjects they were writing about the words that they felt were appropriate to rightly understand the significance of this person. And that's what Luke is doing. He is trying to help us see that 61 verses 1 and 2 is the key to understanding right. properly who Jesus was and what his ministry was about. So tell us, what, what is this Isaiah 61, 1 through 2? What, why tell us about this well why he's why is this, I mean it's, why is this the passage well you know it's it's the passage you know the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to bring you know to mm-hmm. preach good news to the poor we, we you know we did a podcast on it last year it's a fairly important passage in 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 the context of Isaiah the the servant songs in the book of Isaiah are all very important um um, passages that help really convey the message of second and third Isaiah of God's redemptive work uh, through this servant who is kind of an ambiguous figure, really, in the in the pro, mm-hmm. in in um, um, Isaiah. But I think Luke is trying to say, you know, this is if you want to understand Jesus rightly, you have to read him through the lens of this passage. Now, the quotation itself is from the Septuagint translation of mm-hmm. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, which, as is mo- the case for the most part with the Septuagint, is a fairly word-for-word translation of the Hebrew into Greek. The only difference is that the Septuagint, fra- the Septuagint translation inserts the phrase, and recovery of sight to the blind, from Isaiah 42, 7. It's not in the Hebrew mm. passage of Isaiah 61, 1, and, and if you go back into your new RSV, you'll see it's not there uh, because it's not in the Hebrew. Hmm. Now, Luke's quotation includes that phrase from the Septuagint and has several additional changes. Now, again, we might think, well, wait, what is Luke, making up Scripture as he goes? Yeah. No, uh, we, we have to understand how people cited Scripture. People cited Scripture with what we would call interpretive alterations to yes. bring out the significance of of the passage. I mean, this goes back to Ezra. You right, know, right. Uh, in, in the book of Ezra, it talks about how Ezra read from, from the Torah in Hebrew and his helpers sort of interpreted right. them, interpreted the content into Aramaic, which the people could understand. And that doesn't mean necessarily they translated it word for word. They were, they were explaining it. So mm-hmm. Luke is explaining, he, he's explaining the significance of this passage, but he, you know, this, this, this is a process by which people would write the interpretation of the passage into the way they right. cited it. And every, almost everything we, we see has, has scriptural precedent, so it's not like he's just making it up as he goes. Right, right, right. right. And again, this was a very well-established Jewish <laughs> practice of interpreting scripture and quoting scripture. I think the challenge is that we kind of bring our own kind of mindset about Scripture as being kind of this written word that 
it has no alteration. I mean, I, this isn't so much our tradition, but but I think we're still impacted by that kind of mindset about scripture. Well, and if somebody messes up the reading, you you check your copy of the Bible and you say, "Well, look, he missed it here. Why didn't he go back and correct himself?" Mm-hmm. Well, that presupposes Luke had access to a copy of the Septuagint, but, <laughs> right? Right. right. Uh, and and he might have had access to something like this, but possibly he was also working in an oral kind of setting. Right. Exactly. So there's nothing out of whack here. It's just this was what was normal in, in the way New Testament writers quoted the, mm-hmm. uh, the Old Testament and really in the way Jewish um, uh, teachers quoted the Old Testament. This was something normal, this interpretive alteration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Luke's quotation of this passage has several of these interpretive alterations. It has this insertion of the phrase recovery of sight to the blind from, uh, mm-hmm. from the Septuagint that, that the Septuagint includes. Um, but Luke also leaves out the phrase, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, mm. uh, which is kind of interesting. I don't know why he did that. Uh, but then Luke also inserts the phrase to let the oppressed go free. So not only is it to proclaim mm. release to the captives, but also to let the oppressed go mm. free. And that's a quotation from Isaiah 58, 6. Mm. And again, taking other passages of scripture and weaving them into the pa- main passage you're talking about, this was a, this was a, one of the hermeneutical mm-hmm. uh, techniques of Jewish mm-hmm. teachers in that day. And then finally, Luke ends the quotation with the phrase to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we talked about this last year when we looked at this passage because the Septuagint in the Hebrew goes on to say, and the day of vengeance mm-hmm, of our God. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not really the picture of Jesus that Luke is wanting us right, to, to come right, away with. Right. So the effect of all this really is to emphasize the notion of release or freedom, which in the Greek is the term aphesis which in the New Testament more commonly refers to forgiveness. Mm, mm -hmm. But I think those two ideas are closely linked. Mm. Um, Oh, yeah. And and so I think basically the the reason for this passage being cited here is that um, um, Luke... Luke's understanding of the servant's mission is to bring salvation, and he uses Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 to delineate what that salvation would entail. Good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, release for the captive, to set the oppressed go, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are very specific ideas from the Hebrew Bible that um, I think would have resonated in, with the Jewish audience uh, that, he might, that, that may have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, most significantly, I think what it involves is bringing the year of the Lord's favor, which many New Testament scholars associate with the concept of the Jubilee mm-hmm. year in Leviticus 25 and the Torah. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they understand this as a paradigm for salvation in Luke's gospel. Right. And so it seems, this seems to be the main point of the passage is to identify Jesus' ministry as one that brings God's salvation in the form of liberation that is both spiritual, forgiveness of sins, and social, release from captivity, mm-hmm. let the oppressed go free, mm-hmm. um, to both his people, the Jewish people, and ultimately to the whole world. Mm-hmm. And so that is really, I mean, if you think about it, that's almost like putting the Great Commission right at the beginning of yeah. Matthew's Great Commission. That would be like similar to taking Matthew's Great Commission and putting it at the, at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Yeah, very interesting. And um very interesting to think about. For just an aside on this, our, our reformers also some of them will identify this jubilee year concept mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. that has been in the, the interpretive tradition for some time. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And I also am, am impressed because they're also seeing this in much the same light as, as Luke's tactic to set up. Mm-hmm. So the kind of the kind of temptation to make this as some kind of biograph- biographical statement is really a later, I think, a later imposition yeah. onto it, um, yeah. which unfortunately... Well, I think it is especially came with the quest of the historical Jesus. Yes, yeah, right. And which began in about about 1800. It reflected a more modern sense of historic historiography and mm-hmm. and trying to impose that on the gospels right, right. and and it just doesn't fit. Right, right. Well, and to its credit, it's responding to an age where people were questioning even sure. if, if Christ even if Jesus even walked the earth. So sure. then there's this sen- a sense of kind of establishing his humanity. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's just that part of that historical tradition, right. isn't it? Right. Yeah, definitely. So let's move on. Yeah. So Luke, I think, demonstrates a familiarity with the procedure of synagogue worship. I think Luke must have uh, attended the synagogue on his travels with Paul many times um, in, in, as we see mm-hmm. from the we passages in Acts. And so he, he clearly has a familiarity with the procedure of synagogue mm-hmm. worship, for he continues by saying that Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, again, those details... I mean, you might think someone would just skip over that, right? Right. But he adds those details that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, the next phrase implies that the people of Nazareth had already heard something of Jesus' ministry. Uh, The eyes of all in the synagogue Mm -hmm. were fixed on him. You know, uh, it suggests that they may have been filled with anticipation over what Jesus might say. And again, I think this shows us a seam in the gospel tradition because it really presupposes that this event did not actually take place at the outset of Jesus' right, ministry. Right. It presupposes that he had already done some things that they had heard about, and so there was already some anticipation on their part. Mm-hmm. So then the, the segment of our gospel lesson for today concludes with what must have been a surprising statement. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, as we'll see next week, the passage continues with an initially positive response to this bold Mm -hmm. declaration by Jesus. Um, And while the notion of Jesus fulfilling Scripture is fairly common in the Gospels, the Gospel writers talk about it a lot, it's not commonly found on Jesus' lips. He does say it occasionally, but that's not the more common it's more common for the gospel writers themselves right. to say right. Jesus did this in order to fulfill what was written right. in the prophet so and so so um that Jesus would make such an open and bold statement relating to his identity and mission seems strange mm-hmm. in comparison mm-hmm. with his reticence to acknowledge such matters generally in the synoptic gospels along with his preference for the title son of man which we've already seen right. was a little bit enigmatic to them as opposed to son of god or messiah but it's part of Luke's strategy to open the ministry of Jesus with this kind of mission statement of Jesus that has implications both for Christology who Jesus was mm-hmm. and salvation what Jesus was going to do as well as f- foreshadowing i think the ultimate fulfillment of his ministry in the cross with the opposition that he will face right, even in his hometown right right and i think that's that's part of that core that, you know, I just, I just don't like this passage. I don't like that they turn against him. I mean, mm. I, I don't, it's upsetting to me. And when I read it, but that's, I and think see, an important foreshadowing. My, my, and for me, this is one of my favorite passages in Luke's really? gospel because of what Jesus, how Jesus, how Jesus is presented, how Jesus presents himself, the themes that Jesus calls attention to, because it's, it's clearly that he has come to bring this liberating mm-hmm. salvation that is, right. 
right. uh, freedom both from 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 sin through forgiveness, right. but also freedom from all that was oppressing them. And right. then and then when the people of Nazareth, you know, sort of react negatively to the fact that he refuses to do in Nazareth what he had done elsewhere. He, he, t- he cites two notable examples from the Hebrew Bible to say, right. God's purpose is broader than just you folks. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, which is really what gets him into trouble. He doesn't get into trouble because yeah. he breaks the Torah or yeah. he's not, he's not Torah observant. He right. gets into trouble right. because he dares to suggest that God's saving purposes are broader than yeah. their, their little circles, their little, um, um, circumscribed circles of, of where they thought, you know, who they thought deserved to be saved. I think, it, it, and brilliant and, and really helpful. And as I've been processing this this week, I think coming off of Christmas where everything's just focused on this baby, the promises, and it seems to be this silence. And this kind of opens up the noise. Mm, well, it, it really does. You know does. what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so it has an unsettling bit about it, mm. which is central to our faith. Like you're pointing mm. out, but it is it is this abrupt turn, and I think that's why for me it's such an unsettling passage sure, because it's this oh you I can't these... just sit here in the hope of Christmas I have to I have to follow Jesus right, now right and that's not going to be so clean and yeah, so the, I, the, the infancy narratives are kind of warm and fuzzy and exactly and, and now we're starting off with people trying to kill Jesus exactly exactly <laughs> yeah. so I th- I think that's that's why but it's, anyway I'm hoping you have enjoyed this rich conversation for, with Alan because I know I have. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy take us in some interesting places <laughs> with this uh, passage in the Reformers. So take it away, Christy. You know, so the Reformers like to pull apart these little, you know, phrase by phrase. But um, I kind of stopped right at the beginning because what caught my eye this week, and the theme that I want to want to focus on, was that this passage is used primarily to tell us all why we should be in church on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jesus was in the in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Exactly. Day, as was his custom, right? Exactly, <laughs> and that is the argument because Jesus, he was not bound by law. But he came to the synagogue weekly, and out of his free will, <laughs> yes, that is in there, in order to set an example for God's expectations for us as God's people. Boy, you know, you really see how they're approaching this from the standpoint that Jesus was fully divine, but you don't see much about Jesus, the man from Nazareth here. Except in this little free will piece, which God gave Jesus, the human yeah. Jesus, free will. But but he's he strikes me more as the divine savior who's who's showing us the way, you know, to to, yeah, to, well, to, to follow true. God. True, right, the right way to follow God. Right, and right. and you know, I think most of us are coming at that thinking, okay, well, why you know why are the reformers focusing on this? And that's one of those things. It's the lens by which they're coming to scripture, which is partly in what they're seeing as the failed church that surrounds them. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time reflecting on church attendance in general. And I did some newer research on this. So we've talked before um, that the main function that happened was the performance of the mass by the priests. And, um, you remember it's been it was held with their backs to the congregation if there was one and even if you 
or in Europe in a big cathedral today, a mass might be going on. You can kind of wander in and out. It really is something that you might observe, but mm-hmm. you're not really a participant in. Right. Certainly not in the way that we would be participants in a Sunday morning worship yeah, the, service. The, the, the mass is being performed for God, not not something that the congregation right, is taking right. part in. Right, right. And it's these special people that are, you know, um, called to this space by God to perform it. So mm-hmm. they're, they're not even the same spaces the other people right, right? they're they're right. elevated as well um and s- people had some ability to partake in the bread if they had confessed but it's this was really more about what the priest did um and that their actions then would be transmitted to you so they acted mm-hmm. as this kind of filter if right. you will. well they were the they were the intermediaries exactly you know, between exactly God and exactly yeah. so you know, we know we had masses performed. We had high mass, of course, performed every day. We still do. And then it would have other masses. Masses could be done privately. And so families would ask these special people to perform these masses on their behalf or the benefit of maybe someone who had died. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so these these people would be doing this all day long. Uh, mm. Priests often would be doing these. And so sometimes if you go into a, a big cathedral, you'll see these separate little altars. Sure. And that's where some of these private masses would be held. Um, and again, um, church attendance means not so much. Um, but that doesn't mean people weren't religious and or that they didn't believe in these. They did. It's just that there was another kind of group of people that did it. Mm-hmm. Um but they felt absolutely tied to it. Uh, it's not like they do that and I don't have, have to have any piety. They were actually very pious. People were very concerned about their souls. Mm. They were very concerned about their salvation. And they were very involved with religious rituals. And we know they were very good at bringing babies to baptism. We know that they were very diligent about last rites. We know that they were very concerned about their, about their, their souls. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, what we do see is this whole wave of um, uh, lay, lay piety, and that came in many, many forms. And, um, for example, the pilgrimages, and lots of lay people would take mm, these yeah. pilgrimages. Um, there was lots of, um, uh, they would absolutely pr- participate in various types of um, festivals and things like that that were formed essentially around religious ideas what they believed wasn't so important it was more about the ritual itself participation the participation and the recognizing that the right that has been done um was good for their souls right so a kind of an interesting thing and one of the things that became part of piety was the practice of preaching mm. and preaching. And I, I, I'm learning this from Andrew Pettigrew's uh, Reformation and, and the Culture of Persuasion. So this is a little um, 90s text, I believe, but he's a very well-known historian. Um, but he was talking about how these preachers would be hired um, often, and sometimes they would preach three to five hours in a, in a sitting, mm. but not necessarily connected with the Mass. Right. It, it could happen in the Mass, but often they were hired separately of the priest. In fact, they even got into a little bit of a, a <laughs> little bit of debate about their worth. But So people were expecting the sermon. The sermon became almost a kind of a combination. Um, it was an event. Oh, I, I hate to go so far as to say entertainment, but mm-hmm. but it was an event, and they expected these preachers to come and move their souls. Wow! 
Uh, and um, most of them were given, uh, Pettigrew talks about really in Lent, but there was very much a sense of, um, in, in the genre, I, mean, I think that covered the spanned thing, but the genre was um, um, designed for penitence. Uh-huh. And, so, and so I think there was really a hunger. And, and this is thing, a thing that I found with many of the Reformation historians I was looking at, um, Stephen Osmond, um, Carlos Iyer, and Pettigrew, there was really a, a, a renewed religious hunger for something that had more spiritual mm. meat, not just the ritualistic just, practices. Just sort of vaguely participating or uh, spe- watching mm-hmm. the priest and the performance of the yeah, mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and now note, too, the mass was always in Latin. We've talked right. about that before. Right. These sermons were done in the vernacular. Right. And I know, I found, um, and, and we're in Nebraska, at the University of Nebraska Special Collections is... Uh, a large collection of late medieval um, pre-Reformation, if you will, sermons. Wow. And this was a big thing in the early printing press. And so, mind you, the f- printing press comes in 1485, mm-hmm. Johannes Gutenberg. And so by the time you get to 1500, prior to the, the kind of the Reformation publications, this is one of the main genres they're, they're printing. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow, and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would have assumed that the sermon arose with the Reformation. Yeah. I didn't realize that it arose no, in the Catholic no. Church before that. Yeah. So kind of an interesting thing. And, yeah. and so these were being around us and it probably led to why why people were listening so intently to these reformers who were really envisioning a different a, a different kind of um a different kind of worship and a different kind of spirituality that that it seems to be part of the hunger of the age. Yeah, it sounds like they, they took something that was already sort of semi-popular among the people and, and mm-hmm. used it, mm-hmm. you know, in a little bit different mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And, you know, there's, you obviously have a shift then what, from what you're, from this movement, if you will, from this kind of Roman Catholic tradition there to this kind of active spirituality going on and how those are going to unite together then becomes involved with, with the Reformation, then you add on a new renewed emphasis on on the Bible mm-hmm. and on reading it and preaching it. And mm-hmm. guess what? This sits right in front of us. Right. This scripture says, this is why you are called to worship. You're going to worship and and you're going to hear the scripture there and you're going to hear it explained there, which mm-hmm. is exactly what Jesus does. Mm-hmm. So this is not how we inter- we understand the passages we just right, talked about, but right. this is what the Reformers got out of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so then it moves on. This continues to evolve a little bit. Um, and so, for example, in the Heidelberg Confession, they will tie the the practice of worship directly to the Ten Commandments. Right. We've talked about the role of the Ten Commandments before, um, particularly with the Reformed tradition, and here it is. And I, I got it out for you. So this, in response to the Fourth Commandment, it says, first that the gospel ministry and the education for it be maintained, and that, especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend an assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) That's actually pretty amazing um, for keep the Sabbath holy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? For example, usually, particularly um, people that work maybe on a manor, 
um, would be given Sunday off. Mm -hmm. That was considered their day of rest. They may or may not have gone. They could have gone to service, but service sometimes was a really big deal. It wasn't that close. And as as Pettigrew talks about, probably did not have any preaching in it at all. Mm -hmm. um, And so it had a very, it was a, a lay piety thing versus this now that you're going to go and you're going to learn what God's word teaches and you're going to participate in the sacraments and you're going to pray to God publicly. Right. And then you're going to bring offerings for the poor. And then every day of your life, you're going to rest from your evil ways. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, so I, you know, when I, it's funny because when I started my career, I was, I was in a little tiny Baptist church in the country and the lady who was sort of one of the main leaders, she was almost 90 and she talked about back in the day when they literally could not do anything but read the Bible on Sunday. Oh, yes, and, yes. And it reminds me, but, but this is like, Every day is supposed to be that way, it sounds like. <laughs> in a way, right? In a, in a way, right? And, of course, we know that preaching, you know, Calvin was preaching every day. I mean, mm-hmm. so we know that this became a part of it. But it wasn't invented by them, that they had picked mm-hmm. up on on something that had existed. And mm-hmm. so this, it's, 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 I guess it reminds us that the Reformation is a movement. It's, a, it's, it's sure. not just one person or one thing, but there's a whole series of things well, and that p- led to it. I guess what I, what I, my understanding was that there were already reformers within the Catholic world that preceded yeah. Luther and the, and the magisterial there reformers. There were those individuals, Jan right? Hus and some of those Exactly, folks. and yeah. Wycliffe. Um, and, and they were, they, I, I guess I, I would assume they were preaching and teaching somehow. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and they you know they had the group of followers, and, right. and and of course the Hussites jumped right into the Reformation with kind of their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I in studying the hymn books, I the, they had their own kind of hymn tradition. Actually, mm. um, some of those hymns became picked up by the mainstream reformers too. Yeah. It was really interesting. So they, there's there were things that had happened that were kind of yeah the predecessors to to the Reformation. I, Again, and sometimes we step back and say, why does this matter for us today? It reminds us that what things that we want to make black and white are larger things. And I like to think today in particular, I think people are, from what I've seen, and especially with the pandemic, I think people are hunger, hungry for gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, they, and I think, they're hungry, I think they're hungering again for spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't think it's a one answer answer thing sure. but i think it's a broad thing that the church that we can actually really have an active role in so well and it reminds us also that that, that some of the seeds of the reformation were already there in the catholic church prior to martin luther and, mm-hmm. and the other magister yeah. reformers yeah. they were you know the these ideas were, were were didn't just um arise in a vacuum right some people and the way we used to understand history was that we used to think of it as being brought forth by the one great Martin Luther right, or right. what are the, and now we are seeing there's these seeds of reformation that are, that are placed in early. And we, we can look at, at this from many different angles. Um, from many different angles, we can look at it from the corruption that was going on mm-hmm. in the Roman Catholic Church. So as a response to corruption, we can look at it as a response to the intellectual movement of humanism. We can look at it to is the hunger for lay piety. Sure. So all of these things help push this huge movement, which is not only going to impact our faith today, but it's going to impact the modern world that right. we live in today. Right. So, right. yeah. 
Um, so that's the best part of it. But I did find a couple other themes in here um, is that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies. And I, I really liked Calvin on this because we, we talked about in our podcast before how this these uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible prophecies weren't necessarily in pointing towards Christ. Right. And Calvin really said that as well. And Good said, for him. And said, look, um, Christ comes to this. He actually picks, believes he picks the, right. chooses to Isaiah instead of having it kind of divinely chosen for him because right. he's, he's fulfilling this exact thing. And then through the Holy Spirit says, look, and now claims it. Right. So that it makes sense within the context that we've been talking about. Yeah. But I like this because, again, it reminds us that Calvin is so misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Because Calvin, because our desire to to kind of stamp him with being the predestination guy or maybe predeterminism guy, we are forgetting that this is this was an act of... Well, and, and for centuries, you know, the main way in which um, uh, um, Christian scholars uh, um, justified their Christology was by... Uh, pointing to fulfilled prophecy and that was one of the main arguments going back to the Mm -hmm. church fathers and so you know the the fact that that you know people still do it today i mean they still use that to justify uh, a high christology and obviously calvin had a high christology but fortunately he had enough biblical sense to recognize that's not what's going on here. (laughs) exactly yeah exactly so i i i guess i'm you know, still kind of intrigued with Calvin. I continue to think he's much deeper than mm-hmm. the tradition has given him. And um, reminded, I think I think other folks recognize that, especially early on, that, that and some of his thought has been really influential on, I think, what is a very uh, robust intellectual tradition. Well, and I like, the, I like the emphasis on Jesus' agency here, that Jesus chooses the passage to read that's going to, you know, that's going to define his, not only his identity, but also his mission, mm-hmm. you know, for the, his own people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are the main pieces I pulled out today, Alan, but uh, Thanks, I had Christy. fun doing it. Thanks. <laughs> yep. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, really kind of what we're dealing with here is paradigms of salvation. What does salvation look like? And Christy's going to lead us off today. Yeah. So as we got talking in between about what we might want to talk about in this segment, it, it occurred to me of a conversation I had yesterday with one of my Roman Catholic friends, and we were talking about next year how Christmas falls on Sunday. And so she goes, oh, but, but that's not a holy day of obligation. And, <laughs> and I was, you know, so she got really talking about holy days of obligation and thinking about, you know, going to worship and does indeed being present at worship somehow in itself guarantee your salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, I did a little work on the holy days of obligation, which is actually a really modern concept in really? the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, um, that you and and in fact in the American Church in particular, um, huh. like like twentieth century. Really, so this has become like embedded into more of a modern. It is pre-Vatican too, but it's definitely not part of the the the. Uh, 
early part of the church. And of course, wow. it, I thought it would have come out maybe with the Council of Trent, but right. it's not even there. Wow. Um, that this this is later on as part of your duty as a good mm. Catholic and. Uh, knowing, you know, this friend, and I'm, I'm kind of nodding and at her <laughs> because thinking of this is just a very different concept of yes. of salvation. Yes, Are you indeed. saved because you're doing these things? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Salva- salvation by fulfilling your duty as a exactly. Catholic. Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I think about the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, which, you know, in some ways is a wonderful resource, but in other ways can be kind of rigid, you know. <laughs> yes, it can. And the whole the whole thing that, you know, um, you know, that not only do you uh, um, um, attend to the gospel ministry and education for it and, uh, and diligently attend the Assembly of God's people uh, on the festive day of rest, but also every day of your life, you rest from your evil ways. Yes. You know, again, this is a very, um, it's a, it's a paradigm of salvation. That's sort of real, uh, ironically, very dependent upon what you do, you yeah. know, and the fact that you're, it's tied to this, um, this, you know, whether or not you're actually in church. Right. And right. there are a lot of people, one of the things that astonishes me, you know, I, again, many of you, probably already know, I came into the Presbyterian world via the Baptist world. And there's a lot of that um, obligatory thinking about going to church in the Baptist world. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I was growing up, we would have these little offering envelopes and we would bring our offering and you'd check it. Um, um, Sunday school attendance. Yes. um, Bible read daily. Bible brought to church. Tithing. Wow. uh, Worship attendance visitation and how many visits you made you were this was on the front of our offering envelope and you were supposed to fill this out oh my goodness (laughs) and so again you know this whole paradigm of of salvation as what you do and and your your faithful participation in the church when i got in the presbyterian world i mean obviously you know we say we're much more shaped by grace but push comes to shove you scratch people in a, in the pew and you'll find a lot of this same thinking right that, right that you know well if i don't have to go to church in order to go to heaven then why do i go to church yeah yeah <laughs> and it, it, it's still hard and i think that's i think it's partly how we're wired right yeah. we we are we are we are programmed to say what we do and to see results from our actions sure. that's kind of how we're sure. programmed to, to, to think of i'm just, i'm saved and i'm responding to my salvation by being in church, that is still hard to right. wrap your brain well, around. Well, and, and even to push it beyond that, my salvation depends wholly, wholly upon God's action mm-hmm. in Christ, mm-hmm. not on what I do. What I do in my faith and in my life of discipleship is a response to that grace. Exactly. It is it is not nothing more than a response. I don't contribute to my own salvation. I don't, I mean, I, you know, Paul and Peter talk about working out your own salvation, but you know, that's more of a sense, I think of, of, you know, follow through and be consistent with, Mm -hmm. with, with, with your commitment and with, with, um, with the convictions and the commitments that you've made, you know, you, Mm -hmm. you, you don't just, you know, discipleship is not just a one-time decision. It's a daily decision. Mm -hmm. It's a daily response. So, so to some extent, you know, I've said it many times, I've said it on this podcast, to some extent, the Catholic system 
of discipleship is kind of brilliant because it breaks it down into little bite-sized pieces that people can grasp right. and people can can do. Right. Kind of like that little checkbox on my offering well, envelope. Well, I think that's right? part of the attraction, right? Is, yeah. is I think a lot of people just just tell me what to do. Yeah. Just tell, just me, tell what me what I what need to do. To do. Right. right. And and uh, I forget that sometimes for for many people that that kind of faith structure is is central to how they work their whole lives, and and that's true in the Presbyterian world as well. That is, it and, is. and 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 uh, you know, uh, to 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 some extent, I would say the answer to that question, "Tell me what to do," is you don't have to do anything because it's already been done for you. Exactly, exactly. The, the, of course, the fuller answer is you respond by faith, right? And, and you you know, because you have encounter, been encountered by this grace of God that has reached out for you mm-hmm. and has transformed your life, mm-hmm. you live your life differently. And, you know, that that's going to mean you're going to love God and you're going to love your neighbor. That's going to mean things like, you know, you're going to engage in worship because you, you want to worship the God who has saved you out of this amazing grace that he has mm-hmm. bestowed upon you exactly. and that he has claimed you with, you know? <laughs> and, and I think, to me, this is one of the reasons why I love this passage, because this, the way Luke cites Luke, uh, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which, right. as we've seen already, is Luke is, is re- reading some interpretation into this, mm-hmm. you know, to me, articulates that grace, that, that notion of grace very well. You know, he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this notion of, of, you know, lifting the poor, elevating mm-hmm. the poor mm-hmm. out of their uh, hardship, this notion of release mm-hmm. for the captives, mm-hmm. this notion of recovery of sight to the blind, mm-hmm. and, and, and freeing all who are oppressed. You know, this is what the year of the Lord's favor looks like. And it's very social justice in its orientation. It's very tangible. It's very concrete. You know, yeah, when God right. comes to reign... Right. This is what happens. Right. You know, the poor no longer have to do without. Right. They have plenty to eat. Right. Um, uh, the, the, the captives, though, many of whom would have been unjustly imprisoned, they're set free. Right. Um, those who have lost their sight or have, have lost any other kind of ability are made whole. Well, there's mm-hmm. wholeness, right? And then the oppressed, any kind of oppression is done away with by the justice mm-hmm. of God's mm-hmm. reign, right? And, and yet, the thing that fascinates me in Luke's gospel is that the paradigm of salvation is very tangible, very concrete in these ways, but it's not limited to physical acts of liberation it is, because the word, as I mentioned before, the word for uh, release to the captives is aphesis. It's the word for forgiveness, mm-hmm. and so I think there's yeah, a, I yeah. think there's an almost a dual meaning yeah, isn't there. That interesting, yeah. That yeah. because because aphesis huh. can mean release from this physical captivity, right. but aphesis can also mean release from uh, the the guilt of sin. The, yeah, yeah. yeah aphesis yeah. can mean release from being in the power. Mm-hmm. Of of what is evil and what is what right, is destructive. Right. Aphesis can mean recovery, right? right? Which is more of a sense of wholeness to right, us. Right. Which is not something so much we do. <laughs> right. right? When, you know, when you, right. when you when you put it in that context, yeah. 
it's not what we do, but what what God does, and that's uh, and, interesting. And, yeah, and even in even in the even in sort of the the twelve step recovery program, right? You know, um, recovery is you know you work your program. They say but they recognize that the recovery is really kind of a gift from your higher power. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's essentially what's going on here, that, that salvation is a gift of God's favor, of God's grace. It is mm-hmm. the year of the Lord's grace, basically. It is the coming of God's grace in, in the reign of God, in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And these tangible signs mm-hmm. are, are, are connected with the mm-hmm. spiritual reality yeah, as well and yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's one and it's 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 two sides of the same yeah, coin yeah yeah so where there is salvation for the soul there is also this release and liberation for mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. The, the 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 oppressed and mm-hmm. and i i love the way that's combined i do too in this paradigm of salvation that luke uses to for jesus to define who yeah, he is yeah and isn't what that he's brilliant about. it, it yeah. really is really brilliant and yeah it's um and that's why this is one of my favorite yeah, passages I, I of the gospel. Ab- I can absolutely see that. I can absolutely see that. And and uh, it makes it much richer for me, right? As I said, and even though I've moved beyond perhaps my my kind of youthful read of it, mm-hmm. every time I pick it up, that still is the first thing I hear. Sure. And then it takes a little bit of deep breath, reread. And and maybe that's and maybe that's reflective of of again why God and why God's grace is, it's, it's, it's like contrary to who we are. I mean, I think it all fits together that way. Once we, it is so counterintuitive, allow ourselves to just trust. Yeah. And, and that's, that's that interesting space. You know, that's that, that interesting space because it's, it's our humanities to want to be in control. Mm -hmm. And I think it says it with this passage. I think it says it with all in so many ways in this discussion that, um, um, uh, the the true path to salvation is by letting God yeah, have His way exactly, with us. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So here's 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 my here's my here's my guilt. I'm going to tell my guilt to everybody. But so, you know, how often has it been where I've really been struggling with something, and I am calling, I'm calling Alan, and I'm calling all my friends, you know, trying to get answers, and I'm like. Did I sit down and pray about it? <laughs> well, no. That's what I really needed to do. And how um, when I do, which I, then I'm always like, which should be first, because that's when things become clear. Yeah. 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 Well, and I guess just as a response, you know, I, I, I don't think God judges you for, for, um, for being a human being <laughs> who processes things by talking with close friends, right, you know, right, that's right. how exactly. we all, that's how we exactly. all function. But you know, you s- how often is, and, and we see that with people, they, they want mm-hmm. us to solve a problem. And then mm-hmm. we, we really need to do a sit down and pray together because that's well, what and can often open their ears to listening to God's grace sure. right there. And where I've encountered it mostly is, is with people who feel, well, it's almost like this, um, fatalism you know i i i I haven't lived up 
to, you know, the standard for yep. salvation, and I'll never live up to the standard for salvation, so I'll never make it into heaven. I hear this from Presbyterians. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, that's right. And and I try to I try to say, you know, it's not up to you. It's the, the you know everything that's necessary for your salvation has already been done. And, right, and, right, you right. Know, you don't have to. It's not like right. you have to live this perfect life in order to attain it. Exactly, and. The pushback to that, of course, is always that pushback, but the but the response is, or how did they get into that place? I just think popular culture continues to push yeah, that at us. It does. And for some reason, it's so loud. Um, and I think it's, I do, I think it's our natural tendency to be in control, mm-hmm. too. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, it, it's easier for us to wrap our heads around the things we can do. Yeah. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around God and his grace accomplished everything that was necessary for our salvation long before we were ever even born. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But um, to me, that's the message. It is. It is. Yeah. And when, when you sit into that space and that reality, it is, even if it's just for brief moments at a time that you can be in that space, it is, it is the most wonderful. Well, and it's truly release. It is release. It is yeah. aphesis. It is truly release. Yeah, yeah. it is. Well, thanks for that great discussion. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.